See, I think it's more like a TIE fighter versus the Enterprise. The fuck does the Enterprise look like? It's got a big dome and then some naysails. Everyone knows the, the Enterprise. Enterprise looks like a colander with two pew-pews on it. Yeah. <laughs> that is... <laughs> well, that is now... I'm going to go update Wiki right now because that is the best official description. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular culture and media. I am Martha Sullivan, um, and I don't have a fancy title for myself because I had to work all weekend and I'm feeling a little fried, um, but I am joined, as always, by my co-host. I am Pete Romberg. I am uh, just back from a trip to Buffalo where I saw the Niagara Falls and was on a chicken rumspringer, because uh, normally I'm a pescatarian, but we were in Buffalo, so you gotta eat some chicken wings. So, when you... When you take a break from being a vegetarian, yeah. do your insides hate you for like 12 years? So we were there for a wedding, and it's a toss-up between whether it was the fried chicken or the amount of alcohol that I consumed that have caused me some <laughs> no small amount of gastrointestinal distress. But like it's... after a day or two, it's fine, and like <laughs> you just uh, you eat some greens and some roughage, and then it's all good. <laughs> That was a little more than I needed to know, but I guess I am only myself <laughs> to blame. You specifically because I... asked the question. <laughs> uh, joining us today is repeat guest and friend of the podcast, Sarah Caputo. Sarah, thank you so much for coming back. I'm so happy to do it. We are going to be talking about animation, animated movies, and using animation as an educational tool. Uh, but first, before we get into that, we are going to talk a little bit about the pop culture and media that is stuck in our heads this week, that we are unable to stop thinking about, that is just consuming us for whatever reason. Sometimes it's good. Most of the time it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Um, but Pete, why don't you start us off with what's stuck in your head today? Uh, so I was going to start this off by saying, like, I don't know, I was at Niagara Falls yesterday and that stuck in my head. Uh, but then I, I realized that I've been watching Good Omens recently. Um, I'm not done with it yet, but this is the Amazon Prime show adaptation of Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman book from, like, the early 90s. Um, it's about a devil and an angel teaming up to prevent the apocalypse. Um, it is... I, I'm really enjoying the show. It captures... Uh, Neil Gaiman was the showrunner, um... Most of the dialogue and the script is, like, directly word for word from the book, which it's a book I've read a couple times. Um, it has a definite, like, more Pratchett than Gaiman sort of cadence and, and feel to it, and the show does a good job at capturing that. Um, more importantly, the uh, actors playing uh, the demon Crowley and the angel Azeraphael, or Azeraphel, as they apparently correctly say, um are the entire reason for that show to exist, and the entire reason that that show is good. Uh, we've got David Tennant as Crowley, and then I think it's Michael... I'm going to butcher this Sheen. one. It is just Michael Sheen. Cool. Yeah. Um, but it's not, like, the the Michael Sheen. It's a different Michael Sheen. Because um, it's not President Bartlett. Correct. <laughs> um, so it's... It, uh, Michael Sheen is Aziraphale, and they are... Whenever they're on screen, it's good. 
and whenever they're on screen, it's fine. Um, but I'm, I am enjoying it a little bit more than I thought I would. I, I went into it somewhat nervous uh, as to what the actual outcome of it would be. See, I'm actually the opposite. I was extremely excited about this and I have found myself very underwhelmed. Mm. Um, but in a way that's hard to define, like, I, I think it's because it is such an exact adaptation that it, it it feels very like and now we do this and mm-hmm. now we do this and now it's time for this and it doesn't i've been describing it as airless mm. like it, it it just doesn't feel like there's any room to breathe except for and i think you're exactly right uh whenever david tennant and michael sheen are on the screen they are fantastic. Yeah. And I could watch hours of them. I, I entirely, I, I think I agree with you 100% that a lot of what happens feels like it's happening because that's what happened in the book. Mm-hmm. Like, including the narration happening over the video, which honestly, I think they could have scrapped entirely. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I like that it's Francis McDormand as the voice of God doing it, so I'm like, eh, you could do it a different way, but also, I like the actors. Yeah. Well, and the cast does slap, so. <laughs> uh, Sarah, what is stuck in your head this week? Well, I have been watching, um, for the last about five weeks, the AMC adaptation of Nosferatu with my... Ooh dad and uh, my husband and my brother we're all really big joe hill fans and we watch all the adaptations even the disappointing ones although i will say i actually really like the amc show um it's really different from the book um in the book there's a lot of back and forth and like changing perspective and all this and um the show and i'm a big fan of the visual language being different than a book, kind of like you're talking about with Good Omens. I'm a big fan of movie and TV show adaptations not being cookie cutters of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like it. And Zachary Quinto plays like the big bad. Mm. And he is just chewing the scenery with these terrifying spiky teeth. And it's really fun. I didn't know if I'd like it or not because there are a lot of big changes in like time and place. Um, but it, I think it works. I think it's really fun, and I look forward to the next five weeks. Uh, I'm always here for Zachary, uh, Zachary Quinto, um, and I, I never heard of this before, but I love the stylization of it because it's it's N O S four A two, um, yes, which is just some A plus stylization. Well, and it's um, without giving too much away because everyone should either read or watch this, but it's a license plate for a, a very sinister car. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's good. Uh, and it's extra fun because, I, like most millennials, I don't have cable. So the reason my dad hosts is because, like, he's the only one of the five of us who watch it with him that has AMC. <laughs> so <laughs> it's turned into these impromptu, like, doing parties at his house, and he always makes us, like, brownies and stuff. So... Great. That's how we were. That's how we were watching Game of Thrones for a long time, 
we would go over to my parents' house and watch it with my mom and my dad and like half of Oak Park because none of us <laughs> could afford to pay for HBO. Um, no, I was really excited about this. I I really like Joe Hill like as a person um, or as a, I guess, a social media presence. I don't want to make it sound like he and I are friends. Um, but... I, I haven't read a lot of his work except for Lock and Key, which is mm. brilliant. Um, but I was really excited about this. When I saw the trailer, I was like, that looks like it's going to own. So I'm glad that it uh, sounds like it's going well. I haven't read the book yet. Um, which would you recommend for somebody that hasn't started either one? Would you recommend starting with the show or the book? Well, I'll tell, I'll tell you the route my husband is taking. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to reference Joe a lot and it's, it's Joe, my husband, not Joe Hill. Cause we are also not friends. Um, <laughs> although he, he retweeted me once. Um, but that doesn't make us friends. So no, that is thrilling though. <laughs> it is thrilling. It is thrilling. It was an adrenaline moment. Um, so Joe, my husband had never done either. Like he's a big fan of Joe Hill, but he, he reads just a ton. So he never has time to squeeze in like the weird stuff I'm telling him about all the time. And, but he did want to watch the show with us. So he started and he was really intrigued. So now he's, now he's watching the show and reading the book in tandem. Mm. And so he's like making comparisons. Um, and for him, the plot's a lot fresher. And it's funny because we read the book like when it was new. So we're forgetting a lot. And he's like, yeah, you know that guy. And we're like, oh, maybe we should have all like, read this. <laughs> is, is he trying to keep up with where the show is in his reading? Like, is he trying to make it like match bit for bit? Well, that would, I mean, it's truly impossible. Like they have, they have changed the timeline a lot in the show. Okay. He's just trying to make sure he understands the main machinations of the quote unquote magic that takes place in the show. Mm. Um, okay. Because there is a little bit of woo woo, you know, using your imagination to build worlds. And I feel like the show does that well, but I think he's getting more from the book in that way. So if you're a real um, go getter and you want to like read a little of the book, watch a little of the show, I, that's working for him. Um, I think you could go either way. It just depends. If you, I will, the visuals help. If you are a very visual person, some of the things in the book are very esoteric and beautiful, but vague. So the show mm -hmm. might be better. And then going back and reading the book, it might make more sense. So you could go either okay. way. That's very helpful. I tried to get in to see, they were going to air the premiere episode at C2E2 back in March as like a, preview thing mm -hmm. i tried to get into the show for that but the room was so crowded that oh yeah I, it was not it was not going to happen um but cool i am looking forward to getting into that my own self i what's stuck in my head this week is something that i'm actually going to reference again later on in the show when we get into our actual discussion um it is a book called the lady from the black lagoon by mallory o'mira and it is a combo biography and also personal memoir uh the biography portion is about millicent patrick the artist who worked for universal and designed the the um creature from the creature from the black lagoon so like their first original monster property that hmm. wasn't based on like a previous um story or like 
that that wasn't like Dracula or the Wolfman <laughs> who didn't have a who didn't have a basis in like folklore in that kind of classic literature way. Um, she also worked as an animator for Disney. Um, she designed the thing from It Came From Outer Space, one of the first like big budget sci-fi movies. Like this woman was a huge, uh, huge creature designer for a very short period of time. And then after Creature from the Black Lagoon, she never worked again because she got blacklisted by the men who were jealous of her success as a um, designer on that movie. So this is the first like comprehensive biography about her that's ever been written. And mm. it is um, also a memoir. Um, Mallory O'Meara, the author, is a film producer. Uh, so she is also kind of telling her story about her experiences with misogyny and sexism in the film industry. And also her journey in researching Millicent Patrick's life and how difficult that was because um, a lot of the information she had to glean from like uh, like backlot records and you know stuff about stuff that was being written about the people around Patrick rather than about her um, because she was a woman making movies in the fifties and things haven't gotten all that much better um but i'm obsessed with it i highly recommend it to anybody who is interested in film or horror or women or fun narrative or not fun but like enjoyable nonfiction narratives and like i said it's gonna it's gonna pop up again when we get into the meat of our discussion on animation that Ooh, is a that was a no, <laughs> oh, that's a lot of words. Yeah, that's a book I'm almost done reading. I'm like oh, a few chapters away from the end. So I'm about halfway through. Um, oh. Yeah, I I learned about it because Mallory co-hosts a podcast called Reading Glasses, which I listen to and love. It's all about books and author interviews and maximizing your reading time and when I heard that she was writing this book I was like that sounds very like very up my alley <laughs> um, yeah I'm just I'm telling now I'm like telling everybody I know it's like you have to listen to me talk about Millicent Patrick for a while <laughs> <laughs> and they're like who and you're like oh I'll tell you who <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> Uh, we are going to take a quick recess, and when we come, about, come back, we are going to get into our discussion on animation and animated films. genesis of the episode theme today was um my friend sarah i found out that you were teaching is it stop motion that you were teaching your students um i taught them the seven main techniques and they got to choose <laughs> okay but yeah so sarah taught a class on animation um 
And I would just love to hear a little bit about that um, just right off the bat. So when you say you taught them the, the seven main techniques of animation, uh, walk me, walk us through that. Okay. Well, I, uh, I myself, like, the, the inspiration for this um, was that I was finishing up my degree uh, last, like, this past school year, and my capstone project was on animation. And so I was taking these animation classes, and I just kept thinking, you know, when I was a kid, like, technology hadn't caught up to our imaginations yet. Like, I would draw stuff and, like, flip it really fast, and that'd be about as close as I could come to anything like a cartoon. Or my dad would let me borrow his camcorder, and I'd make these, like, little weird stop-motion movies, like, with the Monopoly board. But, I mean, now it's so easy, and I was like, I need to share this with the kids. And... I tried to pick animation that was a little more accessible to them. Um, so we didn't do computer animation just because I work with kids with limited resources and they don't all have Adobe or none of them do. Sure. Um, so the seven main techniques we talked about were really old school DIY. They could do it with stuff probably in their backpack. Um, we did, and I counted puppeteering because some of the kids like uh, younger, like pre-K kindergarten kids they didn't understand like how to make pictures move no matter how much we did it together. So, um, mm -hmm. and I mean, that makes sense. When I was five, I didn't either. Um, but we did puppeteering, um, shadow animation, like basically puppeteering in the dark, uh, cutouts, which is stop motion using uh, paper or physical objects instead of 3D objects, uh, stop motion animation cycles, which is basically like creating GIFs. Mm -hmm. um, traditional animation and did I say stop motion? Regular stop motion um, was the last thing I believe. Oh, and flip and did I say flip books? Yeah, flip books too. Um, so those were the things. Those were kind of the things they learned. Um, and I had um, a a big demo day where I showed them clips from different things using, you know, the different media we talked about. And they got to choose what medium their movie was using, um, using that visual information. And they had to storyboard it first. And I had to check their storyboards because a lot of friends um, wanted, they started wanting to do traditional animation. And it's, as I think we all kind of know, that's a pretty grueling experience. Um, and they had these really elaborate storyboards. So I'd be like, okay, maybe this is something that you can do as a cutout or like you can do as a puppet show or something. Um, so a lot of our animation lab, which is what I ended up calling it, was just them learning and being happy with the revision process. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's a big skill anyway um, for any subject and feeling good, like making mistakes, but still feeling good about them. Uh, so most of the kids ultimately ended up doing something like stop motion or, or a puppet show. And I had a few brave souls who continued on with the traditional Disney, quote unquote Disney style, old school animation. Um, and then a bunch of them just started making flip books all the time, even out of class. So oh. just about, just about all the things were, oh, and I, I remember what it was. The seventh method was, um, story, it's called storybook style. And it's the really old school where they literally just like show a picture and someone would narrate and then it would, do, you know what I mean? 
Like, mm-hmm. this is Jack, and then a new picture. This is Jack's house. Um, I had a couple of those. And, um, yeah, we had, uh, I think, a total. So this was this all culminated in a film festival that we had at the school that all the kids in the school and all the teachers watched and um, anyone else who was around, <laughs> volunteers. I invited some of my friends who are filmmakers to come and, like, be, like, guests to the film festival. Oh. And we had about, I think, we had about 60 films and a, or 65 films, and it ran about an hour and a half. And it was everyone in the school from pre-K through fifth grade. That's really cool. Yeah. It took them. We had a big production calendar hanging up in the art room, and they had about six weeks. And six and a half, because some of them are good negotiators, but um, it was about a six-week project. And I... Um, still like this happened almost two months ago. I'm still really blown away by their tenacity and their storytelling and their commitment. Um, they could have, they could have given me much simpler projects way earlier in the process, but they, they gutted it out and they, you know, they sat sometimes after school, they sat in the, you know, animation lab and retook photos for their stop motions or colored in title cards or, asked if they could add things or and if they finished their movies they asked if they could be assistants to their friends so i had this one table all coloring this one um traditional animation like as fast as they humanly oh. could this one girl was trying to make a movie and she was a perfectionist and her friends were desperately trying to help her like fill it in and um it, i just i feel like teaching animation teaches a lot of other things it teaches a little bit of like motion physics because a lot of the kids that made stuff made things move really dynamically like a ball bouncing and they had to think a lot about how human bodies move um they also learned a lot about sound design because some of them had dialogue so they had to come in on a different day and record additional dialogue recording and choose music and if they wanted sound effects they had to come and record them in the music room and they were really dedicated to their projects like more dedicated than some of the adult artists and animators i know so um, I think animation's a really good educational tool. And I didn't help them as much as I think they believed I would because I gave them everything they needed. And I was there. And I was like, make cool stuff. And I didn't and know. And they said, okay. Yeah, like, <laughs> I didn't know if that was a good idea or not. Because in my brain, I'm like, I'm going to help them. I'm going to hold the camera. I'm going to do this. And I was helping my first class. And they're like, Miss Sarah, can I, can, I, can I frame this up? Can I use the tripod? And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this for them? Yeah, go nuts. Chaotic neutral. Like, let's do it. Um, <laughs> awesome. And they were really they were really into it. Um, I think the best, no, that's not fair because they're all the best. But one of the most memorable projects was, so I work at a school. It's called Positive Tomorrows uh, for homeless children. And it works with their families to get them into housing. And it's just a really great program. And the kids love it. And so some of my kids from my regular um second grade classroom got together with one of the teacher assistants and made a movie about there was an opening at the school for a class pet and so a hamster was applying and um and at first he interviewed at a school called negative tomorrows and the kids there like didn't believe in themselves so they were really mean to the hamster or guinea pig they were really mean to the guinea pig and then he got an interview at Positive Tomorrow's, and it was way better. And they like had a party for him, and like <laughs> it was crazy. It was a crazy. And like my boss did a cameo, like she did the interview with this like stuffed guinea pig they found. 
<laughs> oh, it was really cute. And it was, you know, I think all the teachers like that because they're like, oh, they love the school so much. They made a movie about coming back and working here, basically. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so what do you think was it that spoke to these kids so deeply? Because obviously something about it resonated with them. Well, I think in a lot of ways, I think, I mean, we were talking before the show, a lot of my kids are really meme savvy. And I think it's one of, there's a lot of downsides to the technology kids have, you know, all the time, constantly, like they're never bored. You know, a lot of people have cited there's some sort of developmental issues with like constant access to things like that. But there are some pros. And one of the pros is that the kids are familiar they have like a media literacy that's quite high because they're familiar with YouTube and Netflix mm -hmm. and things. So they have seen a fair variety of animation. Um, I showed them a bunch of stuff, you know, at school, like, and I love all the like, you know, stop motion things. And then they'll find things, you know, international shorts and they'll want to watch those. And so they have a really high media literacy. They understand that these are made by people. And I think that's a really big hurdle that as a, as a child, I didn't always understand like what a process it was to make these things. And they know mm -hmm. because all their content creators have names and they have behind the scenes videos and they, you know, they can log on to, you know, Netflix and see by genre, all the different, you know, animated things. And so when I told them that it was possible for them to make it, I didn't have to do much convincing because they knew that they were so familiar already. They knew that this was something they had seen and therefore they could do. Um, I, well, I will say that about most of the kids. The younger kids were still like, this is magic. Can I play with the camera? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, but most of them, you know, were fans of animated films, you know, talk about them a lot and, some of them have told me, they're like, I want to grow up and work for Pixar. I want to grow up and work, you know, I want to have a YouTube channel where I make cartoons, you know. Those are the things they're interested in. So that's kids today. I had, yeah, I had not thought about um, our kind of pop cultural trend of, like, getting all the behind the scenes and bonus content and stuff. I had not thought about that in connection to like putting a name and a face to all of the hundreds of people mm -hmm. that end up working mm -hmm. on an animated movie. That's really cool. And I said it like you can see that block of credits. Yeah. But then it actually means something to be like, I know, like I follow this person on Twitter and they were talking about being uh, like a flatter for this animated movie that I now really enjoy so it's like part of that movie is now not anonymous exactly and I, I, I was yeah. just about to say I do think the social media presence too like they have there's personas right there's like this animator this illustrator and they're a verified Twitter account you know they have a really famous in between animator maybe and they have an amazing Instagram account like we have a lot of access to the the ideas that go into these movies and we never have never had that before in history which also so. means kids kids are getting a stronger sense of like individual style you know in, in a way that would absolutely not have been the case before where um you know this animator draws things in this particular way like i can identify this person by by like her specific art style um whereas you know e even with like 
Disney has like its in-house animation style, which is gorgeous. Um, that's just their style. Uh, and <laughs> but like that's that's kind of not the same thing as like when you know it's like this person doing things this way. I also really appreciate um, that the kids get to get exposure to a range of styles so that like the, the phrase animated movie becomes less of a monolith, like this idea that animation can be one or a combination of different techniques. Like, Mm -hmm. um, because I, I personally, I am not, and never have been very interested in like drawing something with a pen and pencil, but that doesn't mean that if I wanted to make an animated movie that I would have to learn how to do that. Like there are other options for, you know, if I was more interested in like sculpting or figuring out programming on CGI, like there are other options for you depending on what kind of art you're interested in making and just introducing that as a concept immediately, I think is really cool. Well, I feel like one one of the nice things about my job is that, you know, I'm kind of their fine arts teacher. I teach, you know, art and music, and I'm not grading them. I'm not trying to get them, you know, onto some kind of uh, level of, oh, here's your portfolio and all this. I'm just trying to get them to find the things they're good at. And one of the other reasons I chose the wide range of things was that Uh, Most of my kids like art, but they do excel at different things. And I knew that if I had a lot of options, one of them would have, like, they'd have to fit. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. a lot of my kids even said, you know, they're like, I like photography more than drawing. And so stop motion, I'm like, easy peasy. And it was fun because they just got to play with, like, action figures, you know, all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. So my kids that were like, oh, well, you know, I don't have a good story. I'm like, well, do you have a good action? You know, and so they get, so it's. It's nice too, because I'm with I'm with you, Martha. Like when I was a kid, the way that you got to cartoons, you know, quote unquote, was through drawing them. But that's not really true. That's just all we see the most. Um, mm-hmm. And the the puppets too were were cool. Some of the kids were really self conscious about like creating a whole story, but they did like telling jokes, right? So they t- they'd make a puppet, and there was no story, but the puppet would tell like five or six like knock-knock jokes and it'd be a pretty cute video and they felt really good about that so, oh, just a little tight five for the puppet stand-up club right exactly <laughs> well and they you know they all see sesame street you know like puppets they're get out of the way sarah like let us do our thing uh, <laughs> but it, it was nice to see a lot of i mean i don't i think some of the kids were a little surprised i think because after you know six weeks of work some of their films were quite short because that's how any film project works but none of them were like, I wish I hadn't done it or, oh, that wasn't good. Like, they were all really proud that they had followed through and completed this thing that I think most kids w- never would have even thought to to try to do. So it was good for them, I think. Fun for me. <laughs> well, and like I said, seeing you uh, talk about your experiences working uh, and teaching kids how to do this, um, I have experienced in my own job a lot of prejudice is too loaded of a word I don't want to use that but um, so I buy the DVDs for the adult movie collection at the library 
Um, and I free, I, a lot of that is, um, like animated films, a lot of internationally animated films. Um, I, you know, I, I, they end up being a lot of foreign films, but it's just, it's a, another thing that I, I purchased for the collection. Mm-hmm. And if I had a dollar for every adult that made a point of going, well, this is just kids stuff mm. about like literally any animated movie. It's like, I, it, it turns out that I can bear three of those comments before I make an entire display <laughs> out of all of the <laughs> animated films in our collection. Um, but it did get me wanting to talk about all of the different things that animation can do and all of the different stories we can tell. Um, and just animation as a, as another way of telling stories in another art form. Um, which I what a think perfect is, segue. Yes, it's almost like I planned it that way. <laughs> um, so we all three picked uh, a different animated film, um, and we all three picked films that um, are going to give us a lot to talk about in terms of technique and story and um, all the different things that animation can do. So, Pete, why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie you picked for us? I picked uh, The Breadwinner, which was the 2017 uh, movie out of the Irish production company Cartoon Saloon. Uh, They've also done Song of the Sea and uh, The Secret of Kells, um, both of which are incredible, and I would highly recommend them as well. Um, The Breadwinner is the story of uh, Parvana, an 11-year-old girl living in Afghanistan right before the U.S. invasion. Um, Her father, who has lost his leg... In the uh, during the Soviet invasion, um, is arrested, and so and leaving her and her sister's younger brother and mother uh, without an adult male guardian, which means that they basically cannot function in society. Um, so she disguises herself as a boy, um, goes out, earns you know breadwinner, uh, like becomes that role for her family, uh, while at the same time trying to free her father from prison. Um, also on top of it, uh, she is telling a story to her younger brother and then to others, um, which uh, we find out is about her older brother who was killed um, by a landmine. Um, so it it hits a lot. First off, the animation is gorgeous. I think it's, it's primarily hand-drawn um, in the style of other Cartoon Saloon productions. Uh, and like other Cartoon Saloon productions, it is... It, it, it is... One through line is the importance and the power of storytelling. Um, The film opens and ends with her and her father talking about, like, the story of their people, uh, like the story of the Afghanis, and it is... It it felt very Irish in its ethos of, like, stories have power, um, they... Different stories do different things at different points in your life and, and are useful as a way to sort of grapple with the world and to understand your place in it. Um... Yeah, I, I had actually not seen this when I assigned it, which is, I know, something we try to avoid. Uh, but I assigned this because I'd been wanting to see it since it came out, um, and I used it as a good excuse to make myself see it. And I, I knew it would still be a good fit for what we were talking about. Um, final aside, I was almost furious that this didn't win the Oscar until I realized that it was up against Coco, which did win. And you know what? Fair. That's fine. <laughs> uh, so, because uh, that is definitely a, a difficult choice between those two films. 
Yeah, I always get caught up on the Best Animated Film Oscar because I, I have a very hard time. It's like, are we are we basing this on the animation? Are we basing this on the story? And I know it, the answer is we're basing it on the, the whole of the movie. Um, because while Coco is a very beautiful movie, I don't think it's half as imaginative as the breadwinner yes i mean it's also based um, on like you know studio politics like the breadwinner from some small irish studio no one's heard of everyone voting for the oscars has seen coco there we go well except that i think both the secret of cal's and song of the sea were nominated for best animated feature oh, film yeah, so it's yeah, not they, like they all were um it's also i think easy to sell an animated movie based on the actors names unfortunately like fortunately and unfortunately because it's like i don't know these um, and I, we looked a little deeper into it, um, Joe and I, for the voices, they were all um, uh, people of color that were the voices for the breadwinner, um, yeah. you know, and that's amazing. But, you know, th- there are names that don't immediately ring a bell, but like, oh, Gael Garcia Bernal, like, oh, we know who that is. And I think that the actors sometimes carry that weight more than you'd expect for an animated film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, real quick aside, um, this movie is based off of a middle grade novel that was written in the year 2000, Hmm. which I thought was interesting um, because it feels like a movie that's pitched towards an older audience, but the book that it's based on is definitely for kids like 8 to 12. Oh, wow. Hmm. I I guess, like, like, it's probably hitting hitting the same vein as, like, uh, what's that Holocaust book with the girl who goes back in time did i is that a real book did i make that up (laughs) did i dream that uh anyway i feel like in in fifth and sixth like uh, uh, counting the stars or number the stars um yeah that is a holocaust book which is sort of pitched at roughly the same grade level yeah i think i read that one in fourth grade yeah yeah well, I know there's also a book right now that's definitely aimed at upper elementary because um, a number of my kids have read it. Um, that's like her name was Malala, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it's a I mean, it's fairly explicit. Inter- like it's like, you know, she was shot, you know, and she almost died. And here's what happened to her. And it's it seems pretty grim. But I mean, it's it's for children to learn about. So. And I, I feel like the the. Not having read the book, this movie, I think, is perfectly pitched, um, Martha, like what you were talking about, about how, like, oh, it's a cartoon, it's for kids. Um, this is a true, like, all-family affair where, like, you know, you, you could be, like, only adults watching it, and it would be great. You could also bring an eight-year-old to watch it, and it would be, um, you know, it would cover difficult themes, but it's entirely, like, fine for them, I think. Um... depending on your specific eight-year-old but like it is a it is truly a you know all quadrants kind of situation one of the things i really enjoyed about it was the difference between how the like how the a story is animated versus how the elephant the elephant king yes yes um how the story that parvana is telling is animated because that one is almost like a um almost like cut paper from a storybook yes in in terms of how it's animated and i i loved the 
the visual and the tonal difference between that, which is a story, you know, is being told versus the, um, still stylized, but a little bit more grounded in reality, uh, animation of the like quote unquote real world. When, and no some... one can do swirls like that studio too, by the it's way. It's really <laughs> incredible. They're so specific. Yes. I love them so much. Well, and similarly, uh, not just the animation style, but the fact that like the, the the interruption of the real world into the narration happens frequently, where you know, uh, Parvana is telling part of the story, and then whoever she's telling it to is like, no, not like that, like this, uh, and and then mm-hmm. you sort of see that change happen. I I always like when that occurs. Yeah, that's that's what I got for this one. Uh, did did you guys have any other than like the the amazing animation? Um, had you seen it before? No, I had not seen it before. Neither had I. I actually, and this is my, this is my great shame. I have not seen either The Secret of Kells or Song of the Sea. Ooh. Martha, no. I know it makes gorgeous. it makes no sense, <laughs> and it is it has nothing to do with anything except opportunity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i guess um like i i have seen bits of them on in like their advertising campaigns and their oscar campaigns and i have read a lot about them um and i just have not had the chance to to watch them yet so i was very grateful for the opportunity to actually sit down and watch something from a cartoon saloon because obviously their work is singular and gorgeous um, also, just based on what I have seen from these three movies, I think it's really incredible that their animation style is extremely distinctive, mm-hmm. but also all three of these movies have their own very unique look. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, The Secret of Kells is very Irish forest fairy tale, um, and Song of the Sea is also a fairy tale, but it's like cold and wet and in the water and then the breadwinner is like very dry and red and hot and i just i i was kind of blown away by the fact Mm. that you can that these three are very cohesive looking in terms of a studio style while also being incredibly unique to the stories that they're telling i i did not think about the fact that they had a green movie a blue movie and a red movie Oh, um, and, and now you are because animation is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I think another really amazing thing about I'm gonna is it Cartoon Saloon? Is yes. that what it is? Yes. Okay. I didn't know that. I I'm just like oh you know that Irish studio. Um, they aren't afraid to show really powerful emotions on screen, and I feel like some children's animated films kind of don't show that entirely. Um, when the characters weep in these films, they weep openly and mm-hmm. loudly and bitterly. And when they're hurt and they're angry, like they shout and like it can it can seem, I guess, kind of scary. I think if you're very young, but it's also like they're so human, like their human Mm -hmm. reactions just animated. And I it was really powerful. I was definitely I was crying through some big parts of Breadwinner. It was really emotional, a really emotional story. And I really appreciate that because it is, I think, a great medium for really emotional stories. Uh, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about the movie that you picked for us? Sure. I picked Paranorman, which is a Leica film. 
uh, famous for their stop motion work. Um, and they're really especially famous for Coraline, which is an awesome movie. But I feel like mm-hmm. Paranorman doesn't always get talked about quite enough, um, despite it being a real technical feat. Um, and it is about a young boy, Norman, who can talk to the dead. And he lives in a town called Blythe Hollow. And everyone thinks he's just a weirdo and they're not nice to him. And he's okay with it because he just like has his ghost friends and he's just accepted that, you know, in this town, everyone thinks he's weird, including his dad. And one day he is approached by a family member, kind of an estranged family member who he's not really supposed to talk to. And he's telling him that he has to break this curse. And it sort of begins a a, a one night caper through um, zombies rising from the dead and a witch's curse and he's the only one who can help and he's the only one who can even understand what's happening and the whole town is going absolutely bonkers um, because no one will just listen to him because he's weird and it's a celebration of I think being kind of a weird being a weird kid Um, and it's stop motion uh, using clay and dolls um yeah, it's great. It, I, oh, I'm forgetting the year it came out. I want to say it came out in 2011, but I might be I wrong. I think that's right. Okay, that sounds correct to me. Yeah. And my fun, my one, my one fun little um, weird connection to this movie is that I won a drawing contest they hosted when the movie came out on DVD. So I own a pair of those weird zombie slippers. Uh, that's awesome <laughs> yeah and that, that might be why i'm so partial to it because uh, i'm reminded of it every day because uh, i wear those slippers around but it's just a great fun spooky movie so yeah i saw this one in theaters when it first came out and i remember having the same reaction um that was like that was awesome why aren't more people talking about it especially because was this the first one that uh, Leica Studios had made after Coraline? Um, I believe so, yes. Because, Bo- well, yeah, Box Trolls was after. Yeah, so, Bo- yeah, it was yeah. the second one. Yeah, after Coraline. And it was it was weird to me that it felt like people were talking about Coraline, which was also, in fairness, a Neil Gaiman adaptation. Mm-hmm. But then they followed it up with a movie that I thought was just as strong, but didn't get nearly as much press i love everything that Leica does i think they're incredible i've only seen um, Coraline. i keep meaning to see uh, kubo and the two strings because it looks amazing but uh martha much like you in studio so or uh, cartoon saloon i just haven't gotten around to it well and box trolls was one where i put it off for a while because i didn't think the concept sounded that interesting mm-hmm. and then i watched it and i was like martha you fool <laughs> um, the same thing happened to me exact same thing i'm like this is weird i'll avoid it and then i got it as a christmas gift and i'm like this is incredible i am stupid (laughs) (laughs) um Um, one one thing i really loved about paranorman was the strength of like the direction and and by that i mean um there was a scene where he uh pedals up to his uncle's cabin to go inside and get a book or something and the camera is shooting at the, the wheels of the bike and his feet. And then he, he starts walking towards the cabin and the camera pans over in such a way that eventually you see his back and the cabin. And it's like this, that is a huge, crazy, bold camera choice 
for a conventional mm-hmm. film, and now you're doing it using stop motion. Uh, that is incredibly impressive to me, both um, not just like technically, but artistically. And that I think that's like that sort of visual eye and visual language really carried through. It used a lot of the language of like B horror movies, um, yeah. which yeah. was like very fun to see. I feel like they have a lot of great little transitions like that that are very like send up of like Dawn of the Dead. Like it's got that kind of lurid color and it's got these weird camera angles and it's like it definitely takes a lot of notes from those like like those kind of B horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and does them without even winking about it. Just, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> Here's how we're moving. Um, so I sent you guys uh, an article, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, about how Leica uses 3D printing to make the faces that they use for their characters, mm-hmm. which was like the intersection of everything I love about animation, uh, particularly this idea of like, we know what we want to do, we don't have a way to do it, so we're gonna invent something that lets us uh, that lets us accomplish the look that we want. And I told you guys that the lady from the Black Lagoon was gonna come up again. Um, it reminded me of a, a scene in that that was talking about um, Millicent Patrick worked as an animator on uh, Night on Bald Mountain, the mm. um, Fantasia segment, the Chernobog and one. one of the. Yes. And one of the things that really struck me reading this book was they were talking about how um, Walt Disney wanted to get this very like watercolor effect for some of the the scenes in Fantasia. But you can't watercolor paint an animation cell because it doesn't stick Hmm. to the cell. So they had to invent a technique to do that with the the wax crayons that they were using. Um, And just this idea that like you are never you never have to be limited by the technology and processes that already exist in animation like it's i'm not saying that it's i'm not trying to downplay it by saying that it's easy to just invent a new way of animation (laughs) um but i i do feel like the inventiveness of a lot of these studios is really um kind of what makes like that that's why we talk about the the animators that we or the studios that we do the the people who are making things we've never seen before what? and i just i really enjoyed reading about how they they use like exponentially more faces mm-hmm. in their animation than a lot of stop motion studios do and when they're 3d printing them they do things like dial in the depth for a freckle for the freckles on a face so that the um people who are painting in the details have like a divot to drop the freckle in so they don't have to worry about making it consistent they know it's always going to be in the same place like little stuff like that i think is fascinating well reading that article made me think backwards in time to uh nightmare before christmas which i think was the first animated film or a a stop motion film where um they had a bunch of different head models um for especially jack skellington's face um it might not have been the first i have strong memories of like watching some behind the scenes stuff and it was like here's the briefcase of all 30 expressions (laughs) on his face uh for different mouth forms um and now the idea that like oh yeah we can like 
<laughs> not, not so easily, but like we'll just 3D print hundreds of different possible expressions for each of our individual characters. Um, I, I think is really well, and cool. Then, and then those still have to be painted. Yeah. Like they're not mm. um, hand modeling everyone, but they are still like painting in all of those details. Right, right. But it just means that you're able to, you know, expand the expression, the expressive range so much. Sorry, my cat has joined the podcast. I apologize. <laughs> Hi, Nibbler. <laughs> I think about all of the, like, it's such a combination because I think, especially when I think of Leica, they're so renowned for still doing a lot of things by hand, you know, mm -hmm. like, worry about the the sweet like women that were like hand knitting all the little sweaters that Coraline wore um yes <laughs> and fixing her little hair and stuff uh, alongside these you know sort of necessary uh technological innovations and I I admire because I'm sure that's a hard choice too to automate any part of it but it does create stronger visuals and create more emotion I just can't imagine being like the continuity person for speaking roles like changing yes. out all the heads i cannot imagine that like i love animation oh. but oh my goodness like that would drive me <laughs> up the wall <laughs> the I... other thing that i really oh sorry no go ahead i was about to change the topic a little bit so if you had a another note about that um i was just gonna say i loved the like i love stop motion because of that physicality um, you know, w whether it's, uh, you know, old women knitting the, the sweaters for Coraline or mass produced sweaters, it's still like a physical sweater that is like being photographed in space. Um, and I, I think it like, I love that Leica is a studio committed to doing stop motion animation and really pushing the boundaries of what it can be because no one else is really doing that sort of thing. And Pixar obviously has, has basically perfected the art of the CGI animated film, um, but it is it is delightfully different to watch something that, like, you know was physically on a set somewhere being shot instead of just entirely done through computer rigs. One more, one, like, sort of maybe final note for, like, talking about stop motion or, like, one and a half. If you get a chance, and maybe you guys have already seen it or if any listeners want to, um, look up the the monster fight behind the scenes for Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, because that was assembled with tiny, tiny pieces of paper. <laughs> oh, uh, it, and it was like a, it was like a 10 foot by 10 foot table, something like that. So they had four or five people at a time crafting it and moving it on a rig. And it's like, like it's hypnotizing. It's like less than five minutes long, but it, they, they made like, it's sort of almost like origami based animation. Um, but it, all of the, the scales on this creature are pieces of real paper that some human cut out uh and i just find that absolutely mind-blowing <laughs> well and i love that Leica is kind of dedicated to showing i guess showing how the magic trick works because the end credit like the sequence over the end credits of the box trolls so is yeah it's two of the characters talking about they're having this sort of like meta conversation about like the people who are like the behind the scenes people who are pulling all their strings and the camera pulls out so that you can see the animators oh. in um 
like moving the the characters and adjusting the scene but the um the characters who are talking are going in regular speed so the people who are moving them are sped up so you can like they're just blurs around yeah um but to show you kind of how and also so you can see the scale of these things and how small they are compared to like the people who are actually animating them um which is just another wonderful way of showing that like real people are making these movies and doing things that you could do too if yeah. you if you desired. Um, the last thing I want to say about Studio Leica is how awesome I think it is that they tell stories that are scary. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, like I I don't know that a whole lot of people are making like horror animation um but scary stories deserve to be told in you know as many mediums as as other stories so i i appreciate that they're willing to get like creepy and weird especially because i do think that they are um they do fit into the category of making movies primarily uh directed towards kids um Mm -hmm. but kids like scary stories yeah yeah (laughs) All right, so I assigned Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse. The 2000, what? Spider-Verse. Yes, or as my husband calls it, too many Spider-Men. No, um, not, not enough Spider-Men. <laughs> <laughs> the 2018 uh, animated movie from Marvel Studios about Miles Morales, a teenager who gets bitten by a spider from a parallel universe, um, which sends him on the road to becoming Spider-Man after he watches uh, Peter Parker get killed by the... Does he get killed by Kingpin? Or in a a Kingpin incident? Kingpin and Hobgoblin, I think, are the two involved. And Hobgoblin. Yeah. Um, This... So not only is this movie about Miles becoming a spider, but about becoming Miles becoming Spider-Man, um, but also he has to fix the tears in reality that Kingpin is causing, which are also teleporting spider people from other universes into Miles's universe, um, forming a truly epic team up between Miles and Gwen Stacy from a different universe and. Spider Pig from a different universe, and Nick Cage as Spider Man Noir, and everything about this movie is amazing. <laughs> um, it is, it won um, Best Animated Feature Film at the Oscars last year, uh, beat out Incredibles 2, which was a feat, I think. That's Pixar shocking. does not usually, People yeah, Pixar shocking. does not usually lose that award. Um, but I, I'm not mad about it. <laughs> um, Incredibles so, two was a fun movie. This was a truly spectacular movie. Um, it was game changing. Yeah, game-changing. The, like both both on a storytelling level and also on a technical level. Yes. Um, like I, I love the idea. Like the, frankly, the like it seems not audacious in hindsight. But even there, it still does. Of like, we're going to tell a story of a character that we assume most audiences are familiar with, um, although studios don't treat it that way. But instead of just one Spider-Man, we're going to have eight Spider-Mans. It's going to be really weird. There's going to be weird time portals and alternate dimensions. 
Um, half of them are going to get exactly three lines total, and <laughs> uh, and we're just going to treat it at face value and assume the audience can catch up. Because um, at this point, it's 2018 when it came out. We've been watching Marvel movies for 10 years. We've been watching, you know... It's like, the audience can keep up when you have a wacky thing. It's like, what's that? Oh, it's a time portal to other dimensions? More Spider-Mans? All right, cool. Moving on. <laughs> um, well, and, and I, I Miles that. Morales... I'm sorry? I, I was just saying, I, I appreciate that that gambit that they played where it wasn't, you know, two hours of build-up and explaining who everyone is. It's just like, no, nah, whatever, that, that, that's more Spider-Man. He's, he's from the 30s. He punches Nazis. Sometimes they let the match burn all the way down just to see if I can still feel pain. <laughs> the voice casting in this movie is insanity. Um, but no, I think it was a really smart choice for them to tell this story as a Miles Spider-Man instead of Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. um, I think we... I mean, Miles has been around since 2011 um, and was... The first, I think, alternate universe Spider-Man to really grab the comic world's, like, collective imagination. Yeah. Um, like, alternative universes are not a new idea in the world of comics, but Miles was the first, I think, the first one for Spider-Man who got popular enough that he's really stuck around um, and, and has become almost more, uh, more widely used in current in the current spider-man comics than peter parker um and using him as an introduction to this idea of like a multiverse and anybody like literally anybody can be spider-man you can be a talking pig if you want to be <laughs> um i thought was a really smart way for them to do it um also because at this point I'm a little fatigued. I'm I'm a little Peter Parker fatigued. So getting me to care about a new Peter Parker movie at the same time that like Homecoming and Far From Home are coming out is like mm -hmm. that's a that's a big ask. Mm -hmm. um, but just in terms of animation, this might be the best translation of like a comic book page mm. onto a movie screen yes. that I've like ever seen. Yes. True facts. Um, and not not only that, which like one hundred percent agree, the idea of using like Kirby dots and just other dots around um, to mimic sort of like the the printing, um, but they they also captured an entirely unique kind of animation for each of the alternate universe Spider-Mans, which mm -hmm. is, like, equally staggering when you see them all together and it's like, oh, Spider-Pig is cel-shaded, Noir Spider-Man is black and white, anime Spider-Man is anime-looking. Um, it really, like, it lends that out-of-world sensibility to them. I also appreciate that this was like truly a like a wild combination of animation techniques mm -hmm. like there's a lot of hand-drawn animation happening but there's also like application of cgi where it was appropriate like some of the i believe some of the backgrounds are cgi rendered yeah um so it was just it's it's very much an illustration of like the studio looked at how they wanted to achieve their particular look and just used whatever tool was going to accomplish that for them. 
Um, and I don't think that that's an uncommon thing in animation. I, I hear this, like, you know, 2D animation is dead thing a lot, which I think is an absurd thing to say. Um, I just, I think that people are, I think there are more tools in an animator's toolbox that people are utilizing. And obviously, like, that it varies from movie to movie what techniques people use, but um, I, I appreciated that the that, that Spider Verse was the people who made Spider Verse were really open about how they accomplished um, this really like singular look that they got for uh, for this movie. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of word salad that I hope <laughs> turned into something coherent. Um, Mostly, I think it's weird that people say that traditional animation is dead. <laughs> I mean, if if you're only hearing about Pixar and DreamWorks movies, then that's what you would think. Well, and I think that's kind of the point. Like, Disney and Pixar, Disney, Pixar, and DreamWorks dominate the conversation, but they're not the only mm-hmm. people making um, animated films. Mm-hmm. They're not even the only people making, like, widely discussed and critically acclaimed animated films. Right. They, they just happen to be two of the biggest production companies in the, you know, known universe. Um, well, it's like they forget. I, I think, too, I think it's a very American view because, I you know, I was thinking about, you know, Studio Ghibli is really committed mm. to minimal digital um inclusion like they use it where it makes sense kind of like we were talking about with spider-verse but they're very committed to traditional animation and i think there's a lot of more international animation studios that you know know that 2d traditional animation whether it's done on a on a wacom tablet or in someone's sketchbook it's not going away it's changing but it's not leaving and i feel like here we are very oversaturated with the big you know and i love it too i'm a pixar you know fan but like the big oh, round, sure. super shiny, super well-made computer animation, that's what we see all the time. That's what gets ad time and air time. But I think if you if you leave North America, you see a lot more kind of respect for the for the traditional animation. That's a really good point. I actually while you were talking, I looked up Leica to see I I had this thought that Leica might have been a Canadian studio. They're not. They're American. Hmm. Um, but I I think that's a really good point. Um, that, like, this idea that people aren't making 2D animated movies anymore is very, yeah, American-centric. Because, um, yeah, I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the nominees for best animated film that people are like I've never heard of this before is because they come from uh, different countries so like they don't get as they don't get the same kind of um, release or viewership in America right but we're not the only people making animated films I watch a lot of anime guys I, I I'm not gonna <laughs> lie to you about that um. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm shocked and uh, impressed that none of us chose uh, any anime and specifically no uh, Studio Ghibli. Um, but also like something like Akira going, which I know we had as a, a homework a couple months ago, but um, 
the animation in that, and that's going on 30 years now, is insanity yeah. um, in the best way possible. Uh, and then same with like everything Ghibli is doing. Related to that, someone on Twitter the other day commented, and I'm interested to hear what you guys think about this, um, but they made the comment that um, movies that are traditionally animated uh, hold up better than movies that are uh, predominantly CGI because CGI is te- is a technology um, is a technological innovation which continues to advance. So like the comparison they made was or the um, the example they gave was that in their opinion, toy- the first Toy Story um, was revolutionary when it came out and does not hold up now visually. I have not revisited it, so I can't weigh in on that. My memories of Toy Story are that it's a beautiful movie, but again, haven't seen it in a while. Toy Story um, has the the benefit of being mostly about toys, which can look a little artificial. Like you know, you, like <laughs> their skin looks like plastic because they are plastic. Um, the, the humans in that movie don't look great because I rewatched it not that long ago, and like the mom and the boy and the sister, they're like in the uncanny valley a little bit in yeah. the first one. Sid's a weird looking kid. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Ugh. Well, he's but, weird. Anyway, <laughs> on, on the flip side, Martha, I, I think that that's entirely true for a certain generation of um, uh, computer animated films. But I think, and I'm not going to put a specific date on this, but I would bet that watching, uh, um, here's an example, like the first Incredibles, that's about what, 10 years old now? Please 14. say 14? 14 years old. Hey, even better. Um, I think that still holds up pretty well. Um, so I, I think that there's definitely a point where cutting-edge studio production looked, like, still looks good. It When it came out, it looked cutting-edge. Now it still looks good, um, and it probably will never look bad. Um, well, so then, then I think the question is, because somebody in this thread did bring up The Incredibles as a counterpoint to that, The Incredibles is also very stylized. Mm-hmm. So I think the closer you get to trying to achieve a realistic look... Mm the more chance your film has of showing its age. But like, as long as you're still in the realm of sort of a more stylized um, vision, you're not getting into that uncanny Valley kind of deal that the, the people from the first toy story who I have just looked up um, definitely, definitely (laughs) fall into. (laughs) Like there was that like a final fantasy movie that came out in the nineties that, does not hold up well now. Um, Is I that assume. Advent Children? No, uh, it was like some <laughs> totally unrelated to anything. It was like a sci-fi movie uh, with Final Fantasy in the title. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like at the like, time, yeah. The next generation is here. I remember yeah. uh, we got like a video game magazine and she was on the cover. And even then I'm like, that was kind of rough. <laughs> I, was, I was like some, I was like some shitty ten year old, and I'm like, mm-hmm. like her eyes are, they look kind of weird. Here, here we go. So, <laughs> the, the spirits within, which came out in two thousand one, yeah. uh, and and yeah, it's like uh, that. This is literally the best we can do, and it doesn't look great. Um, but but generally, I think like if you're doing animation, you should lean into that stylization. That's what animation is for. If you're trying to make it look perfectly natural, then make it a an actual movie, like a live-action movie. Um, 
which these days are mostly CGI anyway, but whatever. Uh, I was going to say, I see your shade. I see your Lion King shade. I approve of it. I'm here for it. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, because the three uh, homework assignments this week are all heavily stylized in their own way, in their own technique. Um, and in that way, I think it's interesting that we chose them because it's almost like we chose them based on their visual iconography. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the stories as well. But I mean, those are movies that, you know, they're so different from one another, but they're also different from other films in the in the grand scheme of, of animation. They're highly stylized. The characters are rendered really specifically for their time and place. And I feel like that's part of the freedom of animation is that you don't have you don't have to have any constraints. You can make it as unique as you want. And those people don't have to exist in the real world. That's probably part of the appeal of it anyway, Mm -hmm. is that it's not the real world. It's this amazing imagination world. Yeah, it was really important to me that we have a variety of um, different kinds of animation to talk about. And I think we did a really good job. (laughs) And and we did it randomly. Like, we didn't specifically sit down and, and think, like, all right, you're going to do stop motion. You're going to do a cel-shaded animation. Good job. Yeah, Good job, us. My arm Good is job. sore from patting my own back. I, I had a couple that I was choosing from, and the ultimate des- the deciding factor for me was that um, Spider-Verse was becoming available on Netflix, like, last Thursday. Mm-hmm. So, and I wanted to watch it again. <laughs> um, have, you guys, have you guys seen the clip floating around? Of John Mulaney as Spider Ham. Is that right? Spider Ham? Spider Ham. And uh, they let him ad lib a lot, and he kept forgetting it was a children's movie. And so he's oh, no. just like cursing <laughs> terribly. <laughs> and he was so embarrassed. He just kept forgetting. And so, like, you know, something would happen. And instead of being like, you know, oh, where's Peter? He'd be like, where's that, you know, F is Peter? And, like, they'd be like, cut. And they're like, John! And he's like, I'm sorry. Uh, PG-13, John. PG-13. Yeah, they're like, they're like, we only get one of those, John. It's not this one. You know, so. And they're like, and you're a pig. You're talking pig, by the way. Like, <laughs> yeah. But, like, he's just, like, swearing. And, like, he says something, like, really, like, filthy. And he's like, I don't know why they didn't fire me. Like, <laughs> But I'm, I'm really, glad they didn't. I love John Mulaney in oh, everything. Perfect. Well, and if you're going to have one of those characters spewing, like, the curse word symbols, mm, mm-hmm. I, I feel like Spider-Ham is the one that you you do that with. Yeah. Very true. Oh, I will give you one more cute Spider-Verse-ism. Um, because we, Wonderful. we, t- we didn't, we didn't touch on it, but I think it's definitely on all of our minds just based on how we talk about these films and how important they are. You know, I think, I think the most important thing about Spider-Verse is that it is so diverse yes. and that really, that really hit home for me. I'm going to reference my animation lab a final time perhaps. And, um, a lot of the kids wanted to make Spider-Man based movies because they had just seen it a million times and they loved it. And I, and, and, but they weren't very specific. So I bought, they have like the little plush toys for Peter Parker and Miles Morales. So I bought one of each and I brought them. And I was like, hey, which one did you want? And more than one little boy was like, well, I want the one that looks like me. Mm-hmm. And 
then they got real weirded out because I was trying not to cry because I'm like, that's why you make stuff like that so that they see themselves, you know, because um, it had a Japanese girl. It had a African-American lead who who was bilingual, spoke Spanish, like yeah, half, half Puerto Rican, half, half, like, half yeah, Puerto yeah. Rican, half Puerto Rican, African-American shows his family, like shows his friends who are also diverse. You know, it it's a, it's important to to include that and it boggles my mind sometimes because you always have people that complain about diversity in film or in video games or anything that it's some sort of um political agenda and then you talk to a six-year-old boy who just wants to be the spider-man that looks like him and that's what's really important so that's that's what I admired most about Spider-Verse. Shout out to Dad Bod Spider-Man. <laughs> Speaking of diversity. Pizza in the shower, Spider-Man. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for joining us again. This was a truly delightful conversation. I loved hearing about your kids and their projects. Um a little behind the scenes uh, thing. Sarah sent me some of the projects to look at, which I will not be sharing with you guys because they were made by small children, but they are delightful. (laughs) Um, I was truly, truly uh, enjoyed getting to see those. So thank you very much for that. Um, You can follow the show at DYDYH podcast on Twitter and social media er, and uh, Instagram. I was going to say Twitter and social media, which is incredibly redundant. Yes. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, just search. Did you do your homework? And we'll come up. Um, Pete, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Pico 3000. That's P I K O 3000. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at magical Martha. Uh, you can also subscribe to my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash magical backslash magical Martha. It's been a little quiet the last couple weeks because my life has been crazy. Uh, but I got a couple things in the works, so you should be getting some good, good content soon. Cool. Uh, Sarah, would you like people to be able to find you online? And if so, where can they do that? I would love that. Um, you can find me most consistently on Instagram um, under tiny dot revelations and i'm happy to say that probably towards the end of this year that'll get a lot more active because i'm out of art school and don't have homework anymore and uh we'll be jumping back into some webcomic content this year wonderful i'm excited (laughs) oh and one little plug i'm trying to start a hashtag i don't know if it's working if you are doing projects with kids out there kids and teens i'm trying to use the hashtag kids with cameras so okay. if you are doing that educationally or otherwise, please tag it kids with cameras because I do follow that tag. Yeah, check that out and use that if you are an educator. Um, you can follow my other podcast that I do under the Did You Do Your Homework uh, podcast umbrella. Uh, that is called Love Ya. It is a guided tour through the world of streaming teenage rom-coms that I do with friend of the show, uh, Marin. Our last episode was about Alex Strangelove, available on Netflix, and our next episode will be about 
will be on, I think, Candy Jar is the Netflix original that we are doing for our next episode. Um, Pete, am I forgetting any of our plugs or information or any of the wide variety of info that I am prone to simply blithely skipping over at this point in the recording process? Uh, like and comment and share us with your friends. Uh, we're available wherever fine podcasts are found. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Uh, you've listened to a podcast before. You know how that drill works. Give us five stars. Tell friends about it. Do it. Um, we will be back in a couple of weeks uh, to talk about... Is that when we were going to talk about... Beach reads. Um, beach reads. It is vacation season, and we are going to give you the comprehensive guide to what you should bring on your vacation. Um, have a. This will come out the day before the 4th of July, so have a good and a safe holiday. Uh, make sure your pets are safe. Uh, don't set yourselves on fire, and we will see you in a few weeks. Class dismissed. Mm-hmm.